0: I'm Joel Parker.
1: And I'm Susan Moran. This is KGNU's How on Earth? the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, September 3rd, 2013.
0: Coming up, a California water manager will discuss the Rim Fire that's still raging in Yosemite National Park. You might be surprised at what a California fire can tell us about Colorado's water supplies.
1: And we find out about Comet ISON and what to expect for its appearance in the skies for the next few months.
0: We begin with a look at some of the recent news and science.
1: People who are struggling to lose weight may find encouragement in new research. It shows that even short bouts of exercise, less than 10 minutes, can help shed pounds. The current physical activity guideline for Americans is to get at least 150 minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity a week. That's a little more than 21 minutes a day, which can be accumulated in 8 to 10 minute chunks. So what is moderate to vigorous activity, you might ask? We're in Colorado, after all, where some people say moderate is a marathon jog before breakfast. But officially, it's defined as more than 2,020 counts per minute, measured with an accelerometer. That translates to a walking speed of about 3 miles per hour. The study was conducted by researchers at the University of Utah. One of them, Dr. Jesse Fan, a professor of Family and Consumer Studies, said the study shows that the intensity of the activity matters more than the duration when it comes to preventing weight gain. Apparently, fewer than 5% of American adults today achieve the recommended level of physical activity per week. So, Dr. Fenn said knowing that even short spurts of brisk activity can add up to a positive effect is an encouraging message. So let that be an added incentive to take the stairs instead of the elevator when you go to work tomorrow, and don't say you don't have enough time to lose weight. The study was published this week in the American Journal of Health Promotion.
0: NASA plans to launch the next mission to the moon this Friday. The spacecraft is called Laddy which stands for the Lunar Atmosphere and Dust Environment Explorer. LADEE is designed to study the moon's thin exosphere and the lunar dust environment. An exosphere is an atmosphere that is so thin and tenuous that molecules don't collide with each other and can easily escape. So a long-term exosphere needs to be constantly replenished. Studying the moon's exosphere will help scientists understand other planetary bodies with exospheres, too, like Mercury and some of Jupiter's bigger moons. LADEE will determine the density, composition, and temporal and spatial variability of the moon's exosphere. That will help us understand where the species in the exosphere come from. Sources for the moon's exosphere can include the solar wind, the lunar surface and interior, and meteors hitting the moon's surface. LATI will also examine the density and variability of dust particles that may get lofted into the atmosphere. The mission also will test several new technologies, including a modular spacecraft bus that may reduce cost of future deep space missions, and demonstrate a two-way high-rate laser communication for the first time from the Moon. The launch is scheduled for Friday, September 6th at 9.27 p.m. Mountain Time. Laddie will be launched from the Wallops Flight Facility in Virginia. You can view the launch live streaming online. Go to moon.nasa.gov for links
1: and more information. And another reason to mark your calendars, this Thursday evening, September 5th, John Weller, a Boulder-based writer and photographer, will sign and discuss his new book, The Lost Sea. It's about the Ross Sea, Antarctica, the farthest south that a boat can sail, and what many scientists believe is the most healthy, open ocean ecosystem left on the planet. Weller will explain the geology, oceanography, climate changes, and policies that affect this coldest, driest, windiest place on Earth. And he'll celebrate the natural histories of the creatures that live there. The talk will run from 5.30 to 6 p.m., followed by a two-hour reception and book signing. It'll be held at NCAR, that's the National Center for Atmospheric Research, at 1850 Table Mesa Drive up on the hill in Boulder.
0: You are listening to How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter I'm Joel Parker. And now, we introduce a new contributor to How on Earth, Brian Calvert. Brian is an independent radio producer from Southern California. He just started a nine-month Ted Scripps Fellowship in environmental journalism at the
2: University of Colorado Boulder. Brian, we're lucky to have you. Thanks, Joel. You know, the wildfire burning in and around Yosemite National Park is now the fourth largest in California's history. Covering nearly 350 square miles, the Rim Fire is threatening the Hetch Hetchy Reservoir, which supplies the San Francisco Bay Area with most of its water and power. That's a lot like the 2012 High Park Fire, which sent ash and debris into the water supply of Fort Collins. Now that's where New Belgium brews its popular fat tire beer, so questions about fire and water are not just for nerds and wonks. These fires offer all kinds of lessons on the risk wildfires pose to reservoirs, like many of the 133 located in Boulder County. To understand more, we have Dr. Bruce McGurk on the line from Orinda, California. He's a former water manager for the Hetch Hetchy. McGurk is now a consultant on water issues in California's Sierra Nevada mountains. He's been watching the Rim Fire closely. Dr. McGurk, thanks for being here.
3: Thanks, Brian, for having me. Uh, good morning.
2: Uh, good morning. So, what is the latest on the Rim Fire? What does it look like up there?
3: It's uh, In the two and a half weeks it's been burning, it's uh, headed east towards towards It's now about 40 miles in diameter, and as you mentioned, uh, we have some 368 square miles burned. So uh, they're looking at another week and a half before they'll have it totally under control. They say they have it 75% contained now.
2: Okay, and so what kind of threat does that fire pose to the Hetch Hetchy in terms of power and water?
3: Well, it's, uh, the, the two are certainly important issues to the city of San Francisco. Uh, power supply was cut from the water out of Hetch Hetchy and the two neighboring San Francisco reservoirs uh, just about as soon as the fire started. They've spent over a million dollars buying replacement electricity. Uh, water uh, water has continued to be delivered, but uh, everyone is certainly concerned, Brian. Uh, the, the fire has reached the shore of Hetch Hetchy Reservoir and burned uh, about two-thirds of the way along the south bank, but uh, water quality effects uh, haven't really been seen yet.
2: So what what does that look like in terms of what you're worried about when it's burning so close to the Hetch Hetchy? Sort of describe it. What 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 is the real threat?
3: Well, the real threat, Brian, is uh, in addition, of course, everybody right now has smoke issues, and there is ash fall on the reservoir. But the real issue for water managers is what happens when winter comes, when we start to get rain and snow on forest land that has been burned. Uh, you can have a lot of bad uh, things happen, and uh, that's uh, associated with uh, uh, extra erosion, potential for landslides, and uh, just degraded water quality uh, during winter storms. Mm
2: -hmm. And and what other sort of after effects can that have on the water itself?
3: Well, as as the water uh, becomes, uh, you know, takes on the, the, uh, the Picks up water, I'm sorry, picks up uh, the uh, soil and uh, uh, the turbidity goes up, the water quality becomes uh, questionable, and Hetch Hetchy water, uh, which flows all the way to San Francisco, uh, is generally not filtered. There are reserve reservoirs in the San Francisco Bay Area. In worst case, the Hetch Hetchy Reservoir supply would have to be shut down until the water cleared up, or extra costs would have to be incurred to run it through water filtration plants in the uh, San Francisco Bay Area. So it costs money, throws everything uh, up in the air, and creates a lot of questions and uncertainty.
2: So if I'm a San Franciscan and I'm going to pour a glass of water, am I going to see any effects from that, or does that happen um somewhere else
3: you would see it uh if if all of you know if the worst set of cases comes true right now that has not happened you haven't seen any major effect in the water that's uh, coming out of the taps in san francisco is still clear and totally healthful and safe to drink so uh, but it's a big reservoir and it takes a long time for effects to be seen Uh, Most of them won't be seen until uh, next spring uh, or during the fall when we start to get storms and rain.
2: Okay, and scientifically speaking, what effect does this have on the water?
3: Um, It increases uh, a number of uh, the processes that water managers look at. Uh, After a fire, you can get a lot of erosion and sediment into the reservoir. That can reduce your storage. As I said, it makes the water, it can become less clear. And turbid. Uh, you also worry about uh, nutrients running off from a landshed, landscape into the watershed which uh, can promote the growth of algae and other nuisance uh, uh, species that can degrade the uh, quality and uh, cause taste effects. So everybody's on high alert and there's going to be a lot of testing, Brian.
2: So in places like Boulder County or San Francisco where our water comes from the mountains what lessons should we take from this fire uh, when it comes to our own water supply
3: well we we do need to be learning the lessons brian we have controlled fire for too many years now when it does start it tends to get be uncontrollable and simply be uh... we can't stop it so the lessons we need to learn are that Uh, We need more prescribed burning. We need more fire breaks. We need to spend the money up front working on fire prevention uh, rather than the millions of dollars we're spending now fighting these fires after they start. But that's always tough. People hate to do things, you know, spend a lot of money up front when it isn't yet a catastrophe.
2: Okay, Dr. McGurk. Well, thank you very much. Uh, we appreciate your time this morning.
3: I am glad to uh, get to talk about it, and uh, thanks so much for uh, dialing me in, Brian.
2: That was that was Dr. <laughs> that was Dr. Bruce McGurk, a water consultant and former water manager for the Hetch Hetchy Reservoir near Yosemite.
0: You are tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. Comets have fascinated humans for millennia. At times, some people believed that comets were omens of war or the downfall of kings. Aristotle argued comets were hot, dry exhalations gathered in the atmosphere that occasionally burst into flame. Some people thought that comets replenished Earth's air, and others thought that they were a source of disease. Scientists today study comets because some comets are thought to be relatively pristine leftover debris from the formation of the solar system. So, studying what comets are made of can provide us a glimpse back to the beginning of the solar system four billion years ago. One comet that recently has been in the news goes by the name Comet Ison. Initial predictions suggested that this could be an extremely bright comet later this year, easily visible by eye at night. Recent predictions are more conservative, but ISON may still be relatively easy to view and is of particular interest to scientists who study comets. One such scientist is Dr. Carrie Liss, a senior research scientist at the Johns Hopkins Institute Applied Physics Laboratory in Maryland. Dr. Liss was a science team member for the Deep Impact Mission, which you may recall intentionally collided a spacecraft into a comet to see what was beneath the surface. He's on the phone from Maryland. Welcome to the show, Carrie.
4: Good morning, Joel. How are you?
0: I'm doing well. Thank you for being on our show.
4: You're very welcome. Thank you for having me.
0: Let's start off with ISON. What, what is Comet ISON and why is it called ISON?
4: Comet ISON is a dirty snowball, probably about half rock and half um, ice, mostly water ice, and it is about we think it's about two, four kilometers, a few miles across, or smaller. We don't know for sure what the small end of that range is. It is a body that was discovered uh, by two Russian astronomers from the International Space Observing Network in September of 2012. And ISOISON is an acronym. Apparently Americans and NASA are not the only folks who can make acronyms.
0: <laughs> you say that the, the size is not very well known. Why is it hard to tell?
4: Um, It's hard to tell because it is, when it was first discovered, it was discovered already active, meaning it was already boiling off um, some of its volatile ices. And so the small body at center, if you will, the the chunk or the core that's that's producing all the gas and the dust we see in Comet coma and Tails has already shrouded the nucleus. What we can tell already, important fact, is that originally it was thought it could be a giant comet would produce, and that's why we saw it. So we first saw it eight to nine uh, times the distance between the Earth and the Sun, very far out, just a little bit inside Saturn's orbit, and that's a very far, di- long distance to see a comet. So we thought that maybe it was a giant comet, and that's why we were seeing it so active so far away.
0: Is seeing it at such a far distance unusual for a comet?
4: Yes, it is. Uh, it's, and usually we only see comets maybe two, three, four times the distance between the Earth and the Sun, when it's a lot closer, and when they start boiling off a lot of their water. This one we think was actually running, um, producing a lot of carbon monoxide or carbon dioxide rather than water.
0: So it's water and carbon monoxide and dioxide that drive a lot of the
4: activity on comets? Yes, that's correct. Uh, Is
0: that what we see as part of the comet tail?
4: Uh, That is. Mainly what you see that is in the atmosphere of the comet. And, yes, one of the tails, that that material gets ionized by UV rays photons from the sun and then gets picked up by the solar wind. In fact, the solar wind was first theorized because of uh, its interaction. Well, we saw them in comets and its interaction with the, uh, the, what was streaming from the sun was we used to predict that there had to be something streaming from the sun. And that's called a comet's ion tail. It's typically very blue. Comets also have what's called a dust tail, where the rocky bits that come off the comet get blown away by the sun's radiation pressure in a different direction.
0: So comets actually have two tails.
4: Typically they have two tails. Uh, a classic example of that is if you go look at the pictures of Comet Hal-Bopp, it was gorgeous in 1996 and 97, and you'll see a light blue tail with the ion tail, and you'll see a yellowish-whitish tail, which is the dust tail.
0: Why is Comet ISON of any particular interest, or is it?
4: Uh, comet ISON is of particular interest because we've, uh, it is a comet we think what calls from our, comes from the Oort cloud, which is a giant cloud that extends about halfway to the next star. And is a giant cloud of comets that were made at the very beginning of our solar system and were thrown out and because they failed to become part of the giant planets. They tried to become part of Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, and billions and billions of their brothers and sisters did, but some of them missed. And just like the Voyager and the Pioneer and space missions and the New Horizons space mission, they actually got a gravity assist and got thrown out all different directions. And many of them never came back, but some of them went on these big long looping orbits. So that's what we call a dynamically new comet and it lives in the Oort cloud. The reason why this one's exciting, is because we see about 20 or 30 of those every year. NISON is not the only dynamically new comet to come by the sun. But this one we have more than a year's worth of advanced notice. It is coming, we think, as the very first time it's ever come into the inner solar system. So it's about as pristine as things get. It's been in cold storage for four and a half million years, and it's going to come very close to Mars, Mercury, the Earth, and it's going to come within two radii of the sun, of the sun's surface. It's going to be what we call a sun grazer. It's going to go deep into uh, the corona of the sun.
0: You mentioned sun grazers. Those are comets that get very close to the sun compared mm-hmm. to others. Why are sun grazers of interest?
4: Um, for two reasons, one is that we means we can study them. We have NASA has three uh, different spacecraft that look at the sun 24-7. The Stereo mission, the SOHO mission, and the SDO mission. Actually Stereo has two spacecraft, so that's four spacecraft total, three missions. And so the comet's going to move right through their field of view starting about uh, November 25th and going through to November 29th. So we'll be able to study them just the same way we study the sun. And the comet's going to be extremely active, it's going to be boiling furiously. The other reason is this comet is going to come so close to the sun we're going to get the equivalent of the Bunsen burner experiment you did probably as a high school student where you <laughs> took a little bit of a metal bead and you put it in the flame and you saw beautiful characteristic colors come out. This comet is going to actually be boiling furiously in, if you will, the Bunsen burner, the blowtorch of the sun, and we're actually going to be, hopefully be able to get spectra with some solar telescopes of the Earth and we're going to be able to kind of atoms, not just in those ices that we normally see sublime, but actually the rocks themselves, all the rocky bits are also going to evaporate.
0: That's because this one's getting particularly closer to the sun than other types of comets.
4: That's correct. Now, the largest number of comets known to man now are actually what are called the Soho comets. There have been thousands of comets seen going right near the sun and boiling vaporizing, and very few of them ever survived. And But we think these guys are just small snowballs, maybe a few meters across. Uh, Comet ISON, on the other hand, is, we think, kilometers across, and it's given us a year's notice rather than just a few days you typically get with SOHO. So we've been doing lots and lots of planning. We have over 18 spacecraft between ESA and NASA and JAXA, the Japanese space um, program, that are going to be observing this comet as it goes through the solar system.
0: So there's going to be a lot of telescopic firepower focused on ISON.
4: Absolutely. In fact, because I'm leaving this Comet Ice on Observing campaign, our goal literally is to get every single telescope in the solar system to look at the, uh, at, at the comet. And we have a few exceptions, like New Horizons, the mission you're on, going to Pluto. It's a little bit too far away to look at the comet. And the Dawn mission, which is going to Ceres, has to be very careful about its fuel right now so it can't turn around and look. But other than that, we're pretty much trying to get every, every spacecraft and every telescope on Earth to look at this comet.
0: So when does the comet get closest to the sun?
4: The comet will be on top of the sun on November 28th, also known as Thanksgiving. <laughs> it will be on closest to the Earth on December 26th, also known as the day after Christmas. So if either you can look at this comet as a holiday gift, or for those of us astronomers who have to be at the telescope looking at it, uh, a holiday thief.
0: When will we be able to see it very well from Earth? I assume maybe when it's very close to the sun, it'll be harder to see.
4: It'll be very bright, but it's going to be very hard to see, and you actually can hurt your eyes, so don't do that. Um, Don't stare um, at the sun. Don't stare at the sun. So the the few weeks after it goes by the sun, if it survives, there's two predictions. One is if it goes by the sun and survives, it actually might be a boiled little potato, and it won't be very exciting from the ground, but it will be great for astronomers. We'll we'll be able to watch it after it's gone through its first thermal passage, hot thermal passage, and see what that did to a brand-new comet. On the other and may not be very good from the Earth. On the other hand, if it breaks up, getting right on top of the Sun, if it actually so much heat gets into it that it fragments and disrupts, then it might paint a beautiful paintbrush swatch on the sky, just like Comet Lovejoy did last year and presented a fantastic show for the southern hemisphere. We couldn't see it up here. But this is a northern hemisphere comet coming from way north out of the Oort Cloud. And if it breaks up, it might be fantastic for Earthlings to see in the night sky after the Sun's gone down.
0: So it could break up, it could boil away. We won't know till we see it happen.
4: I think that's correct. We can say it's going to have a very close approach to Mars on October first. It's going to be within well, less than ten percent of the distance between the Earth and the Sun, which is a gorgeous apparition. So the Mars spacecraft, the rovers on the ground, and the, and the orbiting the MRO spacecraft orbiting around the, uh, the uh, planet will get a fantastic view of the comet. And then the Solar Fleet will get it on top of Mars, on top of the Sun and messenger orbiting mercury is also going to get a great view of it. So we know those planets in the sun, are, the solar telescopes are going to be great. The question is whether it's going to survive the close passage by the sun and come back and look good from the Earth. We don't know for sure.
0: So just for a last note for our listeners, how can they view it?
4: How can they view it? What they can do is I will believe after the, about two weeks after Thanksgiving, if you go out in the night sky and right after the sun sets, you should be able to see a beautiful tail in the sky if it's going to be a good comet. And it, if it's like Lovejoy, you can go up, look up, please look up um, images of Lovejoy on the web. It should be maybe 20 degrees or about 10 to 20 times the, the width of the full moon, just going from the horizon and extending all the way up into the, into the sky. It should be very, very pretty.
0: Well, we'll remind people to look up and see what's out there.
4: Great. I hope I hope it's a fantastic show for everybody because been, they've been fantastic in supporting our observations.
0: Well, thank you very much for being on the show, Kerry.
4: Well, thank you, Joel. Appreciate it.
0: That was Dr. Carry Liss, a senior research scientist at the Johns Hopkins Institute of Applied Physics Laboratory in Maryland, talking about Comet ISON. Uh, that's all for this edition of Hell on Earth.
1: Our executive producer is Susan Moran. That would be I. The theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Mulatu Astatki.
0: And thanks to Jim Pullen for engineering our show. Can't listen to How on Earth at our regular time? No worries. Just go to the thehowonearthradio.org and subscribe to our podcast using the iTunes button.
1: Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm
0: Joel Parker.